I'm reading from Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there's a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there's a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Paisley, let's give her a hand for reading that. Great job. Sorry, we had technical difficulties putting it on the screen there, but uh, you're welcome to look it up in your Bible, Luke 18, 1 through 8. Um, yeah, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Welcome to all of our guests. And uh, if you're online, um, go ahead and if something blesses you in the service today, in, in the worship or in the sermon, go ahead and comment or make sure you hit the like button. That just helps to get the word out to more people as well. Um, and a big thank you to everyone who's here in person and an extra special thank you to everyone who's serving today. Let's give a hand to the band, audio, visual, welcome team, everyone serving. So we're starting a four-week series today called God of Justice. And today's sermon is going to be uh, the ethics of God. Then next week will be the ethics of biology. And then it will be the ethics of force. And then the ethics of race. Why are we doing this series? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion and a lot of disagreement on the subject of justice, not just amongst Christians, but actually in our world in general. Uh, lots of confusion, lots of disagreement. And as believers, we've, we've got to get clarity on how we think about issues of justice, but not just to understand it, to actually do the justice that God calls us to do uh, on the earth. Uh, let me start by, I think this, I'm expecting a lot of questions uh, as we go through this series, and so, and I would love to follow up and talk with anyone um, and have more questions um, and, and good discussions on it, but I think because of that, I think we should set some ground rules for this series uh, moving forward. Three things I want to just help us to have in our thinking and our minds about how we conduct ourselves and think about uh, the issue of justice. First ground rule is this, that it's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree. I want to have the kind of church where we agree on the big things, on Jesus, on the gospel, on the Bible. We're firmly committed to all those things. But as we're working out these, these other issues um, that we're looking to Scripture to figure it out, but that it's okay if we don't all see it the same way. That's okay. Second ground rule is um, that we're all learning. I'm learning. You're learning. We're all trying to figure this out. We, we've got to get away from kind of like the Gnostic idea that some people have special knowledge or special insight, that actually we can all, given time, really grasp these topics and these issues well, but that we're all still learning. Um, and the third ground rule is that we need to share grace with each other. That that's how we talk about, because this can be a contentious subject matter to talk about. It's a charged issue in our culture. 
and uh, we need to share a lot of grace with each other and how we communicate and talk about, because in our small groups and people you know in the church, people you talk to about this, you know, I know there's already been heated conversations uh, at times around this subject matter, so I think we need to share grace with each other. Now, the passage that Paisley read to us from Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, is called the parable of the persistent widow. It also can be called the parable of the unjust judge. The purpose of the parable that Jesus teaches us here, the purpose of it is to help us to not lose heart when we face injustice. And the specific response to not losing heart, the specific teaching that Jesus gives us to not lose heart in the face of persistent injustice is that we will learn to be be persistent in prayer. That's the big point. That's what Jesus is getting at. Let me tell you a quick story to help frame our sermon today before we dive into unpacking these verses. Back in the Old West, there was a rancher, or a, a rancher, depending on how you say it, I'll just go with rancher, that's just how I talk, forgive me. And uh, this rancher was bringing a lawsuit against the railroads uh, because um, it was the, the, the lawsuit, he was suing the railroads because um, their construction project had brought about the loss of his prized bull, which is a huge loss of earnings for him. So he was bringing a lawsuit against them. So the railroads hired a top-notch lawyer, um, very expensive lawyer, one of the uh, very, very pricey and very successful lawyer. And on the day of the trial, right before the trial is going to begin, the lawyer approaches the, the rancher and tries to negotiate a settlement with him. And he, uh, he basically is putting a lot of pressure on him, but the rancher's like, no, this would be, I don't want to settle. That's, that's not fair. That's not the right thing to do. I'm not interested in doing that. And, uh, the, but the lawyer's persistent pulling out all the persuasion tactics he can, putting on all the pressure he can. He's relentless. He will not back down. And the rancher caves in. He just can't bear it any longer. Just caves in and agrees to settle for half of the the amount of payout that he should have gotten for the loss of this prized bull, B-U-L-L, bull. I say those words weird, so try and spell them sometimes. So he signs this release statement. So it's legally binding. He receives the check for half of the amount And the lawyer starts gloating and says, you know, I kind of pulled a fast one on you today, that case law regarding this is, there's no way you could have lost this case. You would have gotten the full payout if we had gone before the judge. Those kind of stories just make you mad, don't they? So he says, well, you must be pretty disappointed to hear this. The rancher was kind of embarrassed and responded, made a statement. And the statement turned everything on its head, turned the whole proceedings around. I want to pause the story there. I will will tell you what the rancher said, but I'll tell you at the end. So you have to hang around to hear it. So we're in Luke 18, 1 through 8. This first verse, Jesus tells us that he doesn't want us to lose heart. And then at the end, it's talking about seeking God for justice, that God does. You know, when there is sustained injustice in our lives or in the lives of those around us, man, it's easy to want to give up, to feel beat down, to feel like give up on prayer. Why pray? Give up on God. God said he'd do it. Nothing's happening. To lose heart, to lose hope. God knows we're anxious. We're fragile. It's easy for us. We, we cave in. 
are different things. There were things we shouldn't, that, we, that we should fight, that we should stand up for. We, we give in, and Jesus knows that we're fragile and that we're in danger of quitting when we shouldn't. And so he teaches us, you know, it, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if God just always kind of waved his magic wand and just solved all of our problems and just made everything right instantly. But that's not always the response. The response often is, let me tell you a lesson to help you respond to the circumstance. I'm not going to change the circumstance, but I'm going to teach you a lesson, or at least I'm not going to change it immediately. It, that can happen, but Jesus is teaching us so that we might learn the lesson. And he begins this in verses 2 and 3. He says, in this certain city, there's this judge who neither fears God or respects man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, asking for justice against her adversary. Now, we know that this judge is an unjust judge, an immoral judge, because he won't listen to the widow's plea. He just ignores it. That's a violation of actually the law that he should be following. So we know he's immoral from that stand standpoint. But we also know he's immoral because it tells us that he doesn't fear God and he has no respect for people. So this, this person, this judge, is supposed to be somebody who delivers justice to the people who judges correctly, but he's actually causing a lot of pain and suffering uh, and hardship amongst people because he doesn't subscribe to a higher moral standard. He doesn't have a proper view of what's right and what's wrong, and so it's causing him to perpetuate injustice, especially in this particular case. Now, to know what injustice is, or to know what justice is, is to understand what is right and what is wrong. Justice is only, justice becomes a thing or is a thing. Justice exists or has to become a thing because you have injustice. Kind of a, that's my genius point for the day that I came up with all by myself. Justice is a, is a thing because injustice is a thing. You can't have you know, without true uh, morals, you can't have true justice. Another way to put it is that if your morals are subjective, your idea of what's right and what's wrong is subjective, then you can't actually figure out if something is just or, or unjust, and then for you can't figure out how to actually deliver proper justice. And the Bible is fully aware of this, actually. Time and again, when the Scripture talks about the issues of justice, it pairs them with the idea of morality, with the idea of righteousness. So I've got some scripture here, a little list here we'll go through real quick. Deuteronomy 32, it says, just and upright is he. Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 99, 4, you have executed justice and righteousness. Isaiah 9, verse 7, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Proverbs 21, 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So you're almost exclusively, there's a couple of places where it doesn't, it's not paired together, but almost exclusively when you see the word justice used in the scripture, notice this from this point forward, it's almost always paired with the word righteousness. Now, as believers, followers of Jesus, we have a very different moral framework, moral foundation to the world. And so our moral framework and our moral foundation will lead us to understand justice in a particular way. But if we, because we have a different moral framework to the world, the world's justice will look different to a Christian understanding of justice. Sometimes it will line up if the foundation, if you agree on the foundational morals, that can happen, especially in a, a you know, we, we live in a, a post-Christian environment, but there's still some of the same morals are still there. And so there are times where 
you align on issues of justice, but where the foundation has shifted or is different, you're going you're to have a different outcome, a different view. How does the world, if we're going to define justice, first of all, you have to define what's right and what's wrong. You have to define morals to know what's, what, what, what injustice is. How does the world come to its ethical conclusions on things? Well, forgive me, anyone who studies ethics and these kind of things, I'm going to do a very low-level, very basic overview of this, make some big fancy words, do my best to uh, describe this. But there's three main sources of secular ethical philosophy. The first one is virtue ethics. You have deontology and you have consequentialism. Don't worry about the big fancy words. Virtue ethics is essentially you're trying to be a virtuous person. And if you have good qualities, then you're an ethical person. So it's all about your intent. It's all about, really, it comes from the individual. Ethics come from the individual. That's, that's basically virtue ethics right there. Um, so actually, the outcome of your actions might be bad, might be something immoral might happen, but it doesn't matter. But what really matters is, is that you had the right intent and that you had a virtuous uh, character in what you were doing. Uh, deontology is the idea of following your duty. This is where ethics come from in this worldview, that you follow your duty, you follow the rules that have been set. And it doesn't matter, your intent doesn't matter that much. And actually, the outcome in this situation doesn't matter that much either, as long as you're following the rules that have been set. And so in our world, in our current context and cultural climate, People might appeal to like the moral majority. You say, well, the most people have this idea about what's right and what's wrong. And because the, moral, the majority says this is what's right and what's wrong, that's what the, the rules are. And we use our reason and we look at natural law and we look at these other things and we come up with a series of rules and uh, uh, what our duty is. And then as long as we keep to those things, then we're being ethical, even if the outcome isn't quite moral or the intent isn't always moral. As long as we follow these precise things, that's where ethics come from. And then the last one, consequentialism. This is the idea that, uh, again, your intent doesn't matter. And actually, so it's, it's purely focused on the result, the outcome. So if the outcome is moral, then what you did was ethical. And, uh, you know, this is, this, so you can actually technically do something that a lot of people would say that's immoral. But if the overall outcome is ways more towards good, then in this worldview, people will say, actually, it was moral. It was ethical. You, it was okay that you, you did that, all right? Those are the, the views. Now, there's something a little right in each one of these. Like, we do want the best outcomes, right? I think we'd all agree we want the best outcomes. We want to be virtuous people. We, we would agree with that. We want to follow our moral duty, and we want to follow moral rules, and that sounds right, doesn't it? But there's also some huge problems with where these morals come from. So humans can be, you know, we have... Uh, a conscience, and, and, and most people have very strong moral feelings about things. Obviously, some people don't. You can kill your conscience as well. But just because we can have a conscience and have moral feelings about things does not mean that we're a reliable source of morality because anyone can be deceived. Even the best people, even some of the greatest people that we've trusted or that we put our trust in can be deceived. Human beings are not the, the, the originators of what is moral and what is right. What about uh, deontology? Well, in certain, you know, the way the world is, you create rules and, and, and duty that you're supposed to follow based on the way the world is, but then as time goes on, you have different situations you didn't account for, and you might say, well, if duty is to follow all the rules, 
and we're just going to apply them to this new situation. You actually could end up doing something quite wrong and quite immoral because you, can't, you need to appeal to a higher standard, a higher morality to actually make some... Because there's always an exception, especially in, in law, and, but there's always some kind of exception. So that falls apart. What about consequentialism? Well, we know that there's been... You know, just being pragmatic about outcomes, just saying we just want this pragmatic outcome, has led people to make excuses for the worst kind of evil and bring about the worst kind of suffering. Historically, that kind of that way of thinking, just think about the, the pragmatic outcome of something. So to, have, to be just, to do justice, you have to have a firm, immovable, moral foundation. That's where it begins. That's, where it starts. That's why the Bible pairs together righteousness and justice all the time. They have to go together. So where do Christians, where do we get our ethics from? How do we, well, it's, it's kind of obvious, obvious answer. We believe that morality comes from God. Morality comes from God. And God has revealed himself directly and very specifically and, and very comprehensively in the Bible. So the Bible is our source of, of moral standards. That's what we believe as Christians. Now, it's a whole nother sermon series if we're going to talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible and possible contradictions in the Bible. That's maybe we should do a, would you like a sermon series on that at some point? We'll go through some of those things maybe, or maybe that'd be boring. Don't bring your kids on that Sunday. So, uh, anyway, that's a whole different thing. All right, I'm getting sidetracked here. <laughs> the, the Bible tells us about God in Isaiah. It tells us that God is a God of justice. And throughout, it tells us that God is holy. He is other than us. He's above us in, in his holiness and in his attributes. So, the Bible is telling us that God didn't invent justice or righteousness. These aren't just ideas that he's inclined to or that he likes. He is these things. He is justice. So any viewpoint that we have around our understanding of what justice is, I'm going to say the word justice and injustice a lot today, any, any conclusion we come to has to be based on God's character and God's nature. It has to be directly derived from who he's revealed himself to be in the, in the Bible. Otherwise, it's completely subjective. Otherwise, we're just making it up ourselves as we go along. And actually, we have to use the entirety of the Bible to come up with our understanding of morality and justice. We have to use all of it. You can't pick and choose. And this is the real danger that we want to do. You want to say, well, I like this verse, but I don't like this verse, or I like this and not this. And we pick and choose. We get into real problems uh, when we do that. Let me give you an example. Let's pick another contentious subject. Let's say you want to discover what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And you're going to say, all right, I'm just going to do a study on, on this. I'm going to pull together all the relevant passages. And it's not as hard as you, as you would imagine. There's probably a dozen or so key passages, and someone else might come along and say, well, I think these, this passage also speaks to this issue. And you say, okay, I'll consider that too. And you're going to do a Bible study. And you're going to say, well, what, what is each passage, what's the context of it? What do the words mean in the, in the language? You're going to read some scholars, and you're going to read some experts, and you're going to, um, you're going to, you're going to pray for the, the fruit of the Spirit of, of humility. Because the key to doing this well is to be, to be humble and to be patient and you've got to take the totality of all those things, and you've got to try and find balance between them. You can't just pit things against each other or say, well, that disagrees with that, or this is different to this. You have to, f to, to, to find how do they all work together, because there's a coherent, consistent message that comes from the Bible. And it's not as hard as you might imagine. You've got to have actually confidence and trust that you can discover the meaning of something. Given time, given study, that God's given you a mind, that you can use your reason, you can use uh, the... the, the the different studying techniques, and you can come to 
an understanding of what God's word teaches about a subject. And then you can figure out what is right and what is wrong. And then from there, if there's an issue of injustice, you can figure out what the just thing to do in response to that is. Let me give us an ethical situation to test our powers of discernment. You ready? To see if we're leaning into secular ethics or if we're leaning into God's ethics. All right. Imagine that you have a poor person and a rich person. They both get caught for tax evasion. And the, the amount that they have both evaded taxes, the same proportionally, obviously the rich person would have evaded more, but it's because they have more income, more wealth, but imagine it's a proportionate amount. And then the fine that they're going to receive because they've been caught is, again, proportional to the amount that they evaded, all right? So everything's equal. They, they both knew what they were doing at the time in which they did this. No one was ignorant. They both knew. Everything's equal. The only difference is their income and their wealth. That's the only difference. How do you apply a Christian ethic in this situation? Well, you want to be compassionate. You want to be merciful. You, uh, you want to forgive. You want to consider forgiving debts. That's a Christian thing to do. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others who have wronged us. You want to, you know, want to be uh, empathetic. So you might you know, look at the, the poor person and say, you know, maybe I'll go a little easier on them. They, uh, maybe they've got harder circumstances. Maybe they felt like they had no choice. You know? And you look at the, the rich person, you think, they should have known better. They're just being greedy. You know, they, and, and plus, they have more lobbying power. They actually have the means to maybe kind of wrangle out of this, and they need to be taught a lesson. They need to be made an example of. And actually, the, the rich have always taken advantage of the poor. And so we need to come down harder on the, the richer person than the poor person. Would that be an ethical response? That would not be justice, that would be an injustice to rule that way. So how do we, that would be virtue, virtue ethics perhaps, that would be I'm just appealing to my own sense of moral standards and what I feel about it, or even consequentialism, I want a certain outcome. Yes, the rich have taken advantage of the poor, and because that's happened at large in society, I want to correct it in this moment, to, because, I, because I, I'm looking at the overall consequence of this, but when we, if we go down that pathway, we actually end up in a place of injustice, but the Bible gives us the answer. Actually, this is a nice, easy one to solve. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, Scripture tells us, it says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great or the wealthy. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. What it's saying is the biblical ethic is that it is immoral just based, now, there may be other, in, in a real-life situation, there may be other things that could change the outcome, other situations, circumstances that could change it, but the way I set it up, that the Bible's telling us it would be immoral. It would be an act of injustice to treat them differently. To apply the law differently, not equally, to apply it differently, would be an act of injustice. Now, culturally, you know, we've, for the longest time, we've, you know, we're pretty familiar with, you know, criminal justice, legal justice, those kind of things. I think justice, you know, the, the idea of fairness, it, it's good that our culture is, is grappling with this more and more, that it's a necessary thing because there is so much injustice that happens. So it's a good, positive thing, but not everything about it is, is always positive. So, so, so we're now applying, we're getting to a point where we're applying the word justice to all kinds of things in ways it doesn't always match. So, you know, maybe some of these things match, maybe some of them don't, but now we have, you've probably heard of like education, justice, we have um, economic justice, people talk about that, people talk about environmental 
justice, you might talk about, you've heard gender justice, I heard that one recently, reproductive justice, that's another phrase uh, that you might hear. Um, I don't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to a point, I don't, I don't mean this as a joke in any sense of the imagination, but if we get to a point where people, you know, it's just getting slapped on everything, and we get to a point where it's like it's happiness justice or fulfillment justice, that it's unfair that, that some people are more successful or happier, or, and it's a sense of injustice, uh, over that. That could be in that place where we could get to that place. Now, we also have the phrase social justice for a common phrase. And Christians, I feel like this phrase, you know, has fallen out of favor with a lot of Christians now. And so people use it. The problem is there is a challenge with this, the, the phrase social justice in that it has now come to mean completely different things to different ideological groups who are completely opposed to each other's worldviews. So Christians might say fighting, fighting uh, human trafficking and, and feeding the hungry, hey, that's social justice. And then, you know, something in my spirit, I feel, yeah, that's, that sounds about right, you know. But then in, in universities, you have professors uh, teaching deconstructionism, teaching about oppressed and oppressor, and they'll use all of that, all of those ideas under the umbrella, they'll call it social justice. Groups like Antifa, Waving flags that say social justice, paint, you know, spray painting on buildings, social justice. They, whatever you agree with their cause or not, they say that it's justifiable to use violence to get across their political views. But they do that under the umbrella of social, social justice. Gender queer theories by people like uh, Judith Butler, under the umbrella, labeled social justice, done in the name of social justice, Black Lives Matter almost synonymous with the term social justice. Almost every Christian I know is extremely sympathetic to the cause of racial injustice and fighting racism, those kind of things. As it relates to the organization of BLM, I think they removed it now from their website, but I think it was listed on their, part of their purpose statement. There were several things listed on there. One of them was the kind of subversion of the nuclear family. So that's mixed in, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's mixed in under the umbrella of social justice. You have radical activists and certain politicians who are trying to get Christian universities and Christian colleges shut down, trying to get the uh, charitable licenses of different, organi different religious organizations, like um, many, many different charities, trying to, get them, trying to get their charitable status removed from them, and they do it under the umbrella. They call it social justice. The real kicker is the American Nazi Party. Their work, whatever work they do, what they do, is under the umbrella. They call it social justice. We're all using the same word. It clearly means completely different things. What is the biblical definition of justice? So it makes you think, I'm not sure if I can use social justice anymore <laughs> in describing things. What is the biblical definition of justice? Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter uh, 27, verse 19, says this. It says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, that's the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. All right, so this verse gives us a helpful insight here. Justice is what is due to somebody. What somebody deserves so it can be in the negative sense of retribution. Somebody's done something wrong and they need a consequence for it. They're what's due to them. 
that's one side of it. The other side of it is restoration. Somebody has been harmed. They've had wrong done to them, and they need some type of restoration for that. Both sides of these things are biblical justice. And in that second one there about the restoration one, that also includes caring or having restoration for anyone who's been neglected, anyone who's in a vulnerable group who's been neglected that should have been helped. If they've not been helped, that's an issue of injustice. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 tells us, it says, seek justice, correct oppression. So we see, we see these two sides, that the definition of justice is fair retribution, even retribution, and even restoration, fair restoration. So on that first one, the retribution, the idea is this, that if you commit a crime, someone commits a crime, that the state should punish them fairly. There should be a, a consequence that matches the nature of the crime. That's where the idea of an eye for an eye comes from. So some people will think when Jesus said, hey, you've heard us said an eye for an eye, but I tell you to love your neighbor or love your enemy, that kind of thing. People are thinking that Jesus is getting away, getting, getting rid of the idea of an eye for an eye. He's not. The religious people of Jesus' day were confused by the application and the meaning of that. That relates to the court system, to a judge, to a judicial system, a system of justice, in that the state must find a a proper punishment that matches the severity of the crime. If there's no consequence for wrongdoing at the state level, that's an injustice. If, the, if there is a consequence, but it's too low, it doesn't quite match, that's also an injustice. If there is a consequence, but it's too severe, it's way over the top, way harder than what was actually committed, that also is an injustice. That's why, that's why everyone's so mad all the time, because it's so hard to actually deliver proper justice to anyone. It's so easy to get it wrong. And also people have different ideas of what's fair. People might say, well, that's still not fair or that's still not right. That's the retribution side of it. Then you have the restoration side of it. And actually the Bible talks about this side of it far more, far more than the other side, the restoration. That somebody who's been wronged, in the eyes of the law, the legal system, they should be compensated fairly for what they've lost. Now, of course, there are some crimes, some things that you lose that, you can never, you can never recover. You can never, you know, somebody's killed or something, an irreplaceable object or item, you know, you can't recover those things. But the, what is a reasonable and fair compensation for what this person has lost? And how can we deliver that to the person? So if there's no restoration, that's injustice. If the restoration is too little, that's injustice. If it's over the top, if there's way too much, that's injustice. It's got to be fair. It's got to be even. It's helpful to think about justice in three levels. In three levels. You've got the, the God level, the state level, and the inter, inter, interpersonal or individual level. So firstly, let's start with the God level of justice. God has perfect justice. God can perfectly bring exactly the, the right appropriate retribution for something that's happened that's wrong, but he also can bring the perfect restoration for something that has been, for a person who has been wronged. God is so powerful and so wise that he can actually look at a whole group of people and he can judge if every person in that group is complicit in the wrongdoing and judge them all equally accordingly to 
the wrongdoing that they've perpetrated. God can do that. States cannot do that. Individuals cannot do that. Only God can do that. Interestingly, in Genesis 18, there's this conversation between God and Abraham, and God kind of is getting angry with Sodom, and he's wanting to destroy them for their sin, and and Abraham's arguing like, well, what if there's 50 righteous people? And then he gets all the way down to 10 righteous people, and and God relents. He says, if there's 10 righteous people, I won't won't judge them. And theologians will say, actually, if it kept going, it would have gotten down to one. (laughs) It would have gotten down to one. And presumably, it would have been unjust or unjust, would have been an act of injustice if God had destroyed Sodom and actually just given one, even one person who was righteous the consequence of everybody else. It would have been an act of injustice, and God said he wouldn't do it. Because God has the power to perfectly judge, perfectly see everyone's intentions, everyone's actions, and can hold everyone accountable, and will relent when there is righteousness present. Pretty powerful idea. Nowhere in Scripture does God say that states have the power to do that. That brings us to the state level. God defers to the state criminal justice proceedings. And this is in specific cases where you have people who have been victimized, and then you have adversaries, as the parable here uses the word adversary, or you have victims and villains. You have different ways that you talk about it. But the state is designed to have courts and judges and use evidence and use witnesses and use legal proceedings and have this whole elaborate system set up to try to administer justice to victims and also consequences to perpetrators as well. The problem with this system is it never works very well. It it doesn't work very well. Even even in our country, people will say that in the United States we have one of the best court systems um, comparatively. That, that may well be true, but it's still full of injustice. It's still full of injustice because we don't see everything completely because people lie. People lie under oath. People falsify things. And people perpetrate. Most, so, so many crimes in history have gone unpunished. That's why it's so hard to achieve justice. What about the interpersonal level? Well, the scripture tells us that we're, we're to care for the vulnerable, the weak, the in this parable, right, the widow talks about the widow. Other parts of Scripture talk about orphans. So we could put just all children, children are vulnerable in general. Um, talk about the prisoner, the sojourner, you know, the, the foreigner, um, the elderly. We could put in that category uh, as well. And that if we neglect to care for the needs of these people, it's an injustice. And sometimes even the state will get involved. If there's neglect, especially if parents are neglecting their children, the state will intervene, right, and try and bring justice. To that, but God will hold us accountable. I mean, there are consequences when we neglect our duties to, to serve those in need. And those who don't have the power to defend themselves, who can't advocate for themselves, that we become a voice for them, and that we, if we fail to do that, that there is actually there's, there's consequences for that for us. Um, but also, God promises reward when we do those good works, that there's blessing in doing those good works. So we've come up with this idea. I think we've clarified what biblical justice looks like, both sides of it, the retribution and the restoration, and then the three levels of justice, God's justice, state justice, and personal levels of justice. Let's turn up the contrast, though, and let's talk about three things that justice is not. Firstly, justice is not revenge. 
vengeance belongs to God. Actually, even vengeance isn't even revenge. Vengeance is essentially justice, is retribution. And uh, God delivers this. And so if we're of the opinion, if, if we're holding hatred towards anyone who's harmed us or harmed somebody else, and we're wanting a more severe penalty for them than what is fair under the law, we don't want justice, we want revenge. And we need to repent of that because we're called to forgive our enemies. Now, the state still might hold somebody accountable because somebody can still be a threat to others or their crimes can still have other kind of ripple effect in society. And so the state still might have to hold people accountable, but that doesn't mean that we can't forgive and want true justice. Justice is not revenge. The second thing that justice is not is justice is not equity. Let me explain what I mean by this. The Bible does use the word equity. Actually, a few places it uses justice, righteousness, and equity together. The word equity means something different in our context. Now, biblically, it means very something, simil- something very similar to justice. It means that you're treated fairly under the law. You have the same standards of the law applied to you. Um, you don't, you're not able to kind of wrangle your way out of it. That's what true biblical equity is. But in today's terminology, it's, the problem is, you know, langu- I feel like the definition of words and language is changing so rapidly for us, it's really hard to keep up with. <laughs> and it's hard to actually... I feel like people, honest people are trying to have good conversations about things, and sometimes we just miss each other because we mean very different things by the same words that we use. So when I say it's not equity, what I mean by that, what I'm trying to mean by that, is the idea, it's, it's the Robin Hood approach, right, in society, that we say, well, there's these, been these historical injustices or these different things have happened, and so we want to take from this group and give to this other group over here, either opportunity or resource, even if those people haven't... I, directly been involved in those things, we want to create some kind of equitable distribution of guilt or resource amongst people. That, if that's, that's the, what the world is saying, that's not justice. That's actually a form of injustice. So justice is not, it's not um, equity. It's not, um, what was the first one I said? It's not, it's not revenge. It's not equity. It's also justice is not transferable. Justice is not transferable. Nowhere, actually, there's only one place in Scripture where the guilt of some one person is put on somebody else, and that's Jesus dying for our sin. But, but nowhere does somebody's guilt get taken from them and put onto somebody else, and they have to have the retribution or be on the hook for the restoration due somebody. There's some confusion around this um, you might be, if you know the Bible, you might be thinking, well, doesn't God say he's going to punish to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the fathers? Doesn't it say that? It's a very common misunderstanding of that passage. That passage is it's an idiom. It's, it's a, a Hebrew idiom where it says to the third and fourth generation. God's saying that if the children continue in the same sins of their parents, that he will, he will judge them accordingly for as many generations as it takes for those generations to stop what they're doing. Actually, there are direct verses that say the children will not be judged for the sins of the parents. There's real confusion sometimes around those things. You can't transfer the guilt of one person onto another person. Even if the only person that could do that would be God. States can't do it. Individuals aren't allowed to do it. Only God could do it. And actually, the only time he ever does it is in Jesus for our sin to take the weight of our sin. You know, when we talk about the injustice in the world and we talk about historical injustice and present-day injustice. It's easy to lose heart. And Jesus does not want us to lose heart. That's why he tells us. He tells us in Luke 18. 
Read this part again, verses four through six. He says, for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not be beaten down by her continual coming. And the Lord says, so Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will you hear it? You know what Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable? You can receive justice even from an unjust person or an unjust system. You can. That's one of the lies today is that you can't. But you can, even if it's for the wrong reason. But Jesus is telling us what it takes. You know, fighting justice takes real persistence. I wish it didn't. I wish that the victims of immoral things and those who have, have encountered, who have, have been harmed and mistreated, and especially the vulnerable, I wish there was like an easy button. I wish there was like a dispensary, a vending machine where you could just say, this was how I was wronged, and you would just get justice dispensed to you. But the hard thing is that not only is someone traumatized and harmed by the injustice they faced, but then in the face of that, they then have to advocate for themselves because it's, it's rare for somebody else to see the pain and the injustice that they've experienced, and they have to voice it themselves. They have to advocate for themselves. And actually, that's one of the things Jesus is saying because the, the widow here, she is her own advocate. So we have to learn that. We have to learn how have I been mistreated and how do I advocate for myself and be persistent in that. But also it means that when we, when we do see it in other people, how can I be a voice for them? How can I be a voice for them? We have to rise to the challenge here, rise to the challenge of fighting and being persistent. And Jesus concludes here in verse 7 and 8, and he says, And will not God give justice to his elect, that's his people, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It seems like sometimes God is very slow <laughs> at delivering justice, but the promise here is that actually he will do it fast. He will respond quickly. And the only consolation we have is, I guess, that in the, the speed of eternity is quick <laughs> compared to, you know, this life is a blip. That's the perspective that we need to have, that God is acting swiftly and quickly. We need to understand what the Scripture uh, tells us in uh, Proverbs 29 verse 26 it says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Only Jesus can give us true justice. And actually the foundation to seeking true justice is faith. So that's why he says, when the son of man comes, will he find faith? Jesus says, yes, he cares about justice. Yes, he wants to see justice in our lives. But the bigger thing that he cares about, the foundation to it all is Will we trust him, that he's the God of perfect justice, and then he will solve all the problems in the world and bring healing to all the victims that have been harmed? Will we believe that? Do you believe in Jesus? Or are you more of a kind of a cultural believer, kind of a vaguely religious person or a vaguely spiritual person? Or maybe you're even kind of a social justice Christian. You like the subversive nature of Jesus' ministry. You like how Jesus is always kind of sticking it to the, the man, He's kind of the underdog against the, 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 the evil state. You like that, and you like his concern for the poor and the needy. You like that, 
But when it comes to actually having an authentic relationship with Jesus and obeying all of his words and commands, you're like, not sure about that. In the end, Jesus is looking for faith in his words, trust in his words. What happened to the rancher? Well, he responded to the lawyer and he said, he said, you know, I actually feel guilty for receiving even this check. I came here today to go before the judge and to ask him to dismiss the case. But you wouldn't let me get a word in edgeways and you just kept going on and on. I just felt like I had to take this money. And the lawyer says, well, why, why did you want to dismiss the case? And he says, well, you wouldn't believe what happened late last night. Something showed up and it was that crazy bull. You know, our view of what we think is right and wrong and what we think is just and unjust is so limited. We need much greater wisdom. We need much greater patience. We need much greater humility so that we don't actually veer into things causing greater injustice and pain in the world. The injustice that we, the justice that we try to seek that we cannot have in this world, God will perfectly deliver for us. Let's have the band come up and respond in worship. Let's seek the God of justice, seek the God who will correct all wrongs, who perfectly sees the right perspective from heaven and can deliver and administer perfect justice. But let's also be those who advocate for the widow, for those who have been harmed, that actually with persistence, even in an unjust system, you can see justice. And God says, listen, even for an unjust judge who gives you justice for the wrong reason, how much more is God going to deliver justice for you and for, for me? How much more? So much more. He's going to do it. Come to Jesus today. Turn to Jesus today. Put your faith in and respond. If you want to get more involved at Trinity, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to give today, if you want prayer today, whatever your response is, reach out to us. Use that Connect card. It's for everyone. You can text in the word ENJOY to 94000 and take a next step. Figure out how do I apply this? How do I live out what I've been hearing today?